This episode of Indie Film Weekly is brought to you by our good friends at Musicbed, licensing relevant music. It's June 23rd, 2016, and this is Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord, editor-in-chief of No Film School, and with me is... John Fusco, producer at No Film School. And Emily Booter, managing editor at No Film School. On this week's show, we'll talk about what the new net neutrality rulings mean for indie filmmakers, some drama in the documentary world... George Lucas's groundbreaking new audio technique, and as always, news you can use about gear, upcoming deadlines, new film releases, and Ask No Film School. Welcome to Indie Film Weekly. As always, we're coming to you from downtown Brooklyn, New York, and we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy working on films. We're in our sound booth here at the No Film School office, and Emily just got off the phone with... The delightfully and surprisingly pleasant Todd Solent. He's the director of Welcome to the Dollhouse, which is his most famous movie, and he he's just coming out with a new film called Wiener Dog, which I saw last night, and um, it is... It is a very surreal movie, much like his other stuff. Um, the through line is basically this tiny wiener dog that gets passed from hand to hand. And of course, the characters are very, very absurd. And um, it's it's really funny, just like his other work. I can't even imagine what it's like to talk to someone who's come up with so much quirkiness uh, on the phone. <laughs> well, he is actually incredibly nice. And um, he's a lot more enthusiastic than I thought he would be, despite his really dark subject material. You're going to write up this interview for No Film School soon? Yes, probably next week. All right. Everybody can look out for that. And in the meantime, we've got our headlines this week. We are going to start with an issue that is very relevant, I would argue even critical to filmmakers and basically anyone who works with online content. So that's us every day. Um, last week, there was a huge victory for supporters of net neutrality. You've probably heard this term before, may not know what it means, but I think it's important that we all do understand it. It's it's basically the principle that the company that connects you to the internet does not get to control what you do on the internet. So the question at hand is whether or not your internet service provider has the power to control what we all see and do online. And so there's been this ongoing legal battle for years between the FCC and companies like AT&T, service providers, who want the power to basically ban domains or choke traffic and data for business or political reasons or basically for any reason they want any time to, to limit the content that we can see. To me, the way I see it is it comes down to just this manifestation of democracy on the Internet. This is our first time that we're really having to grapple with such a big concept in this new arena. Yeah, and it's a big deal for indie filmmakers because, and the reason that we should all know about it is because it, it doesn't only mean that a service provider could like ban our films if they don't like them for whatever reason, that the whole industry could be affected. And so this is why, um, you know, we're so glad to hear that basically this most recent um, ruling by the U.S. Court of Appeals in D.C. was in favor of the FCC over the broadband providers because the broadband providers were trying to get the, the net neutrality rules that exist overturned. The other reason why this is relevant to us is because it, it could also mean that, like, if the Internet service providers decide to give better bandwidth to companies that could pay more than smaller sites that stream indie content like Fandor or 
the mom and pop shops, video stores of the 21st century. Yeah, they would be basically at a disadvantage to the Amazons of the world. So we have a post up on uh, No Film School explaining more about um, what this latest net neutrality victory means for indie filmmakers. And I definitely encourage you all to keep an eye on this issue. Moving on to a couple documentary dust-ups, the first one of which got a prestigious curator fired. Woo! The Museum of Modern Art, MoMA, here in New York, has a very robust film program. Um, Probably all of us have seen films there. They have programming going on every night. And their associate curator, Sally Berger, has been there for 30 years. One of the things she was responsible for was the Doc Fortnight Festival, which is an annual doc showcase coming up this February Um, But she is actually not working there any longer. And according to The New York Times, it's because of this whole kerfuffle, which is that she invited and then disinvited Russian filmmaker Vitaly Mansky and his film Under the Sun to the Doc Fortnight this year. So basically, this movie I talked about earlier on the podcast from South by Southwest because it was one of my favorite films of the year. And it is very subversive. So it's... It's been denounced by North Korea and Russia. It's a film that takes place in North Korea. It's a documentary. And the only way that the filmmaker got permission to film there was that basically the North Korean government had to stage all the scenes. So what he did to sort of get around that is that he also filmed the staging. He just left the cameras on all the time. And so in the final film, you you basically see that the whole thing is staged. Is it a reveal at the end? It's not a reveal. It's like the whole thing is a reveal. It's bizarre. It's, it's, it's surreal. It's almost like if the frame were cropped, you wouldn't know what was going on because you'd just see what what the North Korean government wants you to see. But because the frame is expanded, you're seeing all the goings on on the outside of the frame and seeing that the entire what's supposed to be a truthful documentary is just completely manipulated. And so North Korea and Russia have, you know, freaked out about this film. And the the curator, Berger, was was reportedly concerned that MoMA could face retribution from North Korea because you all remember a couple years ago the whole Sony Pictures Entertainment hack where, you know, North Korea supposedly protested that movie The Interview by, like, screwing over Sony Pictures. What kind of retribution could MoMA possibly face from North Korea? Like, are they beholden to them in some way? (laughs) <laughs> well, it's... North Korea seems like they think that everyone is beholden to them. Then it doesn't really, you know. But what dog does MoMA have in the fight? I mean, I think she basically was saying, like, look, they hacked Sony. Who knows what they could do to us? It's not it's not worth it. I, I mean, she clearly has good foresight or is just maybe freaking out a little too much. But I mean, it's screened at other festivals. Absolutely. So, so it's it's all feels like very fishy but ultimately MoMA agreed with what sounds like you guys feel that this was like an un you know it wasn't a necessary move on her part and they actually fired her that's that's also seems a little extreme to me though so maybe extreme actions on both sides I totally agree and actually in a related story um, it's, it's not about the distribution, but on the filmmaking side, when we're talking about sort of like ethics and what effect films can have uh, and truth in documentary, basically this story as a doc maker, it's like my worst nightmare. 
um, at the L.A. premiere of this documentary, Tickled, which is just released by Magnolia Pictures, some of the subjects showed up and they threatened the filmmakers basically publicly in front of everybody, accusing the filmmakers of lying on screen and using footage that they'd not agreed to have used. Now, the irony of this is that the film itself is about how the subjects of the film exploited videos of participants in an underground tickling competitions, which, like what? Is that a fetish? Um, well, <laughs> I mean, I can I can relate to this, not in the sense that I've <laughs> can you? been tickled before. I have been tickled, but never on camera. Not in that way. Um, you guys, I'm really uncomfortable. <laughs> and hopefully our listeners aren't uncomfortable with this. But <laughs> I, it's clear to see I'm why... I'm tickled by it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it's clear to see why, you know, people that are the subjects of this documentary be, would be uncomfortable with, like, having footage of them in it without being notified it's a kind of an embarrassing and like sexual sort of like almost pornographic uh industry really um because it is is an industry well so i have a friend who i'm not going to disclose his name because i'm not gonna go about the route that maybe these documentary filmmakers did is his name elmo no it's not it's that's a that's a that's a puppet (laughs) Um, he likes to be tickled. Yes, he does. Uh, so does my friend, maybe, but I'm still not going to disclose <laughs> okay, his name. Unknown friend. Um, he, um, about a year out of college, was contacted <laughs> just out of the blue um, by this woman who found him, I guess, on either like a casting network site or maybe like a model site and uh, offered him $1,000 and round trip expenses and a hotel um, to go on camera and athletic shorts uh, and no shirt and handcuffed to a bed and be tickled by like three other dudes also wearing athletic shorts and, you know, shirtless. Stop it. Um, and the weird thing is that none of this is ever really put on any sort of pay site. It's just like on Vimeo it's just sort of like a private collection for this woman who I'm sure other people uh, follow and sort of you know uh, pay patronage to the to this fetish um, but I can definitely see why you know like my friend did this right out of college um, it's something that he I don't think he regrets but if it got out there and if it was in a documentary that was being widely seen I think he would naturally be upset and it could have some like weird effect on his career so the filmmakers weren't exploiting the people in the tickle videos the filmmakers were exposing the people who were exploiting the people in the tic- tickle videos mm-hmm. so like Apparently, the way the way what the film is about is about people who are making money without the permission of people who participated in the tickle videos by like making those videos public. Mm-hmm. And so the filmmakers are exposing those those people. And then those people came to the screening and were like, we didn't allow you to do this. And that's okay. kind of the irony of the whole thing. So the people that were being tickled allowed them to show it. But the people who filmed the people being tickled, weren't 
uh, signed on for that. It's something like that. Okay. And so basically, I didn't want to mention either of these items, the MoMA item or this item, as sort of gossip, even though they're like a little bit gossipy. But I do think it's it's important for us and our community at No Film School to sort of keep up the conversation that we've had going around documentary ethics, both on the production side and on the curation side. So we'd love to have you guys weigh in, you know, let us know your thoughts on these issues. And on a really, really sad note, um, in a tragic turn of events, the 27-year-old actor Anton Yelkin actually died this weekend in a freak car accident involving a recalled 2015 Jeep Grand Cherokee. Apparently, he was pinned between his car and the fence. It's absolutely terrible. The Russian-born actor and USC film school grad already had a prolific career, He had 65 credits to his name, so he was really cut off in his prime. Yelkin was best known for portraying Pavel Chekhov in Star Trek, but his mainstream success was actually preceded by astounding performances in many smaller films, most recently Jeremy Saulnier's Green Room. Saulnier told my album Mater IndieWire this week, and I quote, I put a lot on his shoulders when I asked him to play my lead, but he carried the cinematic weight like a goddamn champion. Not only did he bring a delicate balance of tragic vulnerability and intense physicality to his character on screen, but he offered his unending generosity and patience off screen. I actually went to a panel last week, and I, there's an article about it up now that's, uh, that covers most of what was said, but Saulnier was one of the directors who was speaking at the panel, um, and he got a little bit into um, his, his the process of... Uh, what he calls gore score in his movies um which is basically he writes out like all of the gore uh very technically because he used to be a makeup artist himself um but he attributed most of his success with gore and sort of the success of gore overall to the actor's performances and the example he used was this moment in um green room i don't know if any of you have seen it but um yelchin puts his arm into uh this oh man i forget the exact thing it's it's a hole but then when he pulls it out it like his wrist actually becomes like detached from his arm so it's disgusting but what Saulnier says was that was actually very simple to make as far as makeup it's just like a few tiny little stitches or paint jobs the reality of it comes from the performance of just how Yolchin was holding his wrist or you know carrying it so he was really a special talent yeah he really was an incredible actor and i'm i'm not sure if any of you have seen like crazy that was my favorite role of his and it was definitely his most intimate he played a character named jacob who was um, a furniture maker and he and his co-star felicity jones largely improvised on the basis of what was essentially a skeleton script so the entire movie was in their hands. So he can really take responsibility for creating that character. He falls in love with a British exchange student, and the film is about their torrid love affair. Um, And Yelchin oscillates between this extreme charisma and vulnerability and empathy and fear. And he manages to convey this duality that, um, that human beings are basically just walking contradictions works in progress and never more so than when we're in love with each other that film really really moved me and it occupies a really big place in my heart so I was very shocked to see that this had happened to him so not only did we lose a fantastic actor but we also lost a very great human being 
and a big proponent of the micro-budget filmmaking scene. At one point in his career, Yalkin said, If you want to make movies, you need to think on a micro-micro level and figure out how to make them for nothing with people who really care about your movie and really want to make it. Yeah, we don't talk about actors that much on the show or cover them that much on No Film School because we are usually talking about um, behind-the-camera roles, but obviously none of us could make our films without them, and um, it's really moving to learn about uh, Anton's commitment to indie filmmaking. It sounds like he will really be missed in the larger filmmaking community. Rest in peace. So now looking back at some of the gear news from this week, there's a new GoPro accessory that allows you to record footage with your mouth. And while this might sound kind of bizarre, it actually is pretty useful. POA Labs is aiming to cut down on three major issues that GoPro users face. Using up your battery life on a bunch of useless footage that you end up trashing anyway, all the while missing out on recording the moments you actually want to capture. So the idea is when you're on a bike or when you're doing some extreme sports, you don't actually have the ability to be controlling the GoPro um, to be starting it and stopping it. So you're catching, capturing all this footage that essentially you don't really need. But this hands-free GoPro accessory, which they're calling the GoHawk, allows you to hit record with your mouth so you can be more selective of when you actually want to use the camera. They're doing that using a remote shutter button input that lets you choose from the hands-free mouth switch or you can have a thumb-triggered handlebar switch on your bike, or you can use your own switch with the universal 25 millimeter port that is a part of the accessory. Another cool feature of it is that it has an auxiliary USB power input, so that's for extended shooting, so if you actually are running low on battery, you can just plug in right there. The product is on Kickstarter now. If you want the GoHawk, the LED indicator, and the tongue or bite switch, you're looking at dropping a $170 pledge for the whole package. And that LED indicator is lets you know that your camera is on and recording and you can mount it on your helmet or wrap it around your handlebars or put it wherever you'd like on your extreme vehicle. I think one of the most exciting things about all these Kickstarter and Indiegogo gear stories that we've covered lately is that like, it's not like the normal marketplace. It's like these products are created by people who are out there using this stuff and who know that there's a need and like aren't making superfluous items. They're making little gear gadgets that are just going to make all of our lives so much easier. It's fun to it's fun to follow these. Yeah, it's also cool because you're essentially paying for the product and the development of the product. So you really get to feel as if you're a part of this sort of company in a sense. And you're helping other filmmakers while you're helping yourself. Another product that is currently circling the internet but not out yet is what they're calling the first universal panning tool that will work with any slider on the market. It's called the Auto Pan, and it allows users to synchronize pans with any slider on the market, as I said, and you don't need any hardware or tools to keep it running. It's equipped with an internal motor that can be programmed in four different modes, target, panorama, async, and spin. And I read a little bit about these um, sort of different modes. Target is basically for interviews when you want to keep like a direct focus on whatever you're shooting. Panorama is sort of made for 360 shooting. Async allows you to kind of do whatever you want with the cameras and spin also allows you to control the different cameras that are on your slider um, to spin in whatever direction you want. So it's, it's pretty neat. You can check out the video in this article that I'm talking about, uh, which will be with the accompanying post of this podcast, and you can see how these modes work for yourself. 
There's no price point yet, but it could be really helpful for people with clunky cameras and sort of dated dolly systems. So keep an eye out for it. It it looks like it might be pretty expensive um, just because of the technology they use, but if they can keep it cheap, it could be really useful for us as aspiring filmmakers. I like that. Clunky cameras and dated dollies. I know. I was going to say something. I I didn't even do that on purpose. (laughs) It sounds like a book for like... Like a book about indie filmmaking. Emily, you you uh, reported on an interesting tech story this week. Yeah, this is this is something a little bit out of the ordinary. So I don't know if you've heard about the Faroe Islands. They're an archipelago of 18 volcanic islands in the North Atlantic Ocean, which are between Norway, Iceland, and Scotland. This guy called Mike Day made an award-winning documentary called The Islands and the Whales, where he followed whaling controversies on the, on the Faroe Islands. It's a very unique atmosphere there. It's an isolated community. And Day really wanted to transport his audience to the experience of that environment soundscape. He decided to recreate it. But in order to provide viewers with that full immersive experience, he needed a really specific kind of multi-directional microphone. He contacted none other than George Lucas's Skywalker Sound, and they worked together to create this groundbreaking sound technique, which is an ambisonic microphone, which allowed Day to remap the entire sphere of sound in the field. So basically everything that you hear from all directions, including the sound from above and below the microphone. And then they worked with Harpex, a software company, to translate the recordings and to reproduce them in cinemas. So when you watch the movie, the theater system uses 128 speakers, including vertical channels, which allow everybody in the audience to experience the sound as if you were actually there in the environment. So I actually, this morning, went to a screening of Swiss Army Man. Um, That was at Dolby Atmos, Dolby 88. um, And I experienced it, that sort of sound uh, technique for the first time. And yeah, it's really crazy. This one only had 34, I mean, and I say only, but it had 34 speakers in it. And it's like each, it, it gives the sound mixer the ability to choose which speaker um, the sound that he's mixing comes out of at what time. Like Swiss Army Man has an incredible soundtrack and it's it has like a lot of different voices coming in in different times and different places and it just like kind of makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck. It's really cool. I, I can't imagine what it'd be like with 128 speakers. That's nuts. I think you, you probably don't even realize what you're missing when you when you go into a theater and you only hear sound coming from the left and the right. I can't imagine what other what other emotional experiences you could have from an immersive experience like that. Yeah, totally. I'm sure this is going to be useful for 360-degree VR filmmakers, too. I mean, this is the way it's all headed. And I totally made a note to myself. I mean, next time I have an audio issue on a film, I'm just going to call up George Lucas and be like, yo, help me out. We want to give a special thanks to Musicbed for sponsoring this week's podcast. Ever since Musicbed entered the industry, they've been changing the music licensing game for us filmmakers. There's no more sifting through endless production catalogs or settling for a song that, like, just kind of works. They've signed with more than 600 of the world's best indie artists and composers. That means incredible music for your projects with friendly staff and an easy-to-search catalog to help you find it. This catalog represents artists in so many different genres, from indie veterans like Need to Breathe, Kai Kai, Ben Rector, Parade of Lights, and my pals in one of my favorite bands, Paper Moons. It also includes classic artists like Johnny Cash and Jerry Lee Lewis. 
So head on over to musicbed.com to explore their catalog, read up on a blog, see their latest film, or just chat with a music expert. Right now, this is the best part, they're offering 20% off a single license just for Indie Film Weekly listeners. You can get the discount by entering the promo code SCHOOLSOUT when you check out. That's S-C-H-O-O-L-S-O-U-T when you check out. There's no better time to find the perfect soundtrack for your latest project. As we've mentioned before, summer is a slower time for grant and festival deadlines, but that means it's a great time to apply for some of the grants that have rolling deadlines. So, for example, a couple of the big documentary film funds, the Fledgling Film Fund, which goes for outreach and engagement for social issue doc films, and, of course, the famous Sundance Fund, which finances uh, documentaries both have rolling deadlines, and links to both of their applications will be on the post associated with this podcast. And something that isn't technically a grant, but still can get you some cash, is this Cinespace short film competition, which we just posted about a few days ago. It's really interesting, very unique competition. Um, NASA and the Houston Cinema Arts Society have teamed up to organize it. Um, It has $26,000 total in prizes. It challenges filmmakers around the world to make a film inspired by and created with actual NASA imagery. So submissions are only required to have 10% of the video imagery be from NASA, but it's actually really easy. They make it really easy to obtain this footage. Um, If you go to their website, there's this massive archive of images and even stock video that you can use of space that NASA took. Um, And it's just sounds like a really cool idea uh, for anyone with an interest in sci-fi or anything. The only constraints they're really asking for is that it'd be 10 minutes or under and it can be any genre you want. Um, The grand prize is $10,000, but as I said, there's like a second prize and a third prize and some special prizes, which all together are $26,000, and $10,000 is not bad for a fun little short project. There's some festival deadlines coming up, too. The Baltimore International Black Film Festival has a festival deadline of June 25th. So in order to enter, your writer, director, or producer must be of African descent or has to tell a story about the black experience. Alternatively, you can also feature a person of African descent in a leading role. The festival also has a great subsection of LGBTQ filmmakers. Speaking of LGBTQ filmmakers, the Seattle Queer Film Festival called Twist has its final deadline on June 27th. It's the largest LGBT festival in the Pacific Northwest, and it offers cash prizes. And June 28th is the final deadline for entering your film into the Orlando Film Festival. It's been running for 11 years, but this will be a particularly pertinent year for obvious reasons. They give out over 25 filmmaking and screenwriting awards and have some fantastic prizes, including a Shorts HD distribution deal for every winning short film. They also hold a screenwriting contest, um, and it's kind of unique because the script that's chosen from this screenwriting competition becomes sort of a featured project for several panels, including a live reading. And Filmmaker Magazine also said it was one of like the 25 best um, festivals worth the entry fee. So it seems like a good one to apply to. And now it's time for Ask No Film School. Ask No Film School. D. Roberts. D is not his first name. It's his first initial. He asked, should I just quit my normal job? 
what should I do? And to put that in context, I guess I'll just read the whole question because it's pretty eloquently written. He says, I'm a 21-year-old. I think about movies 24-7. I've made quite a few shorts. I've written so many screenplays, so I badly want to get into the industry as soon as I can. But this fucking job. This fucking job. It's nothing to do with filmmaking. It's so I can get some money coming in, but I'm wasting 25 hours or more a week on this. I'm making so much time for my work, but I want more. I want to go on more sets, meet more people, get runner jobs, make my own movies. I want to get in there when I'm still young. I know I won't get there on the spot. I got to work hard and hard for it. And he's right. I mean, we get questions like this a lot, and they're fun to answer because, of course, we're all quite passionate about filmmaking here at No Film School, and we all have full-time jobs here at No Film School, so we can totally relate. This fucking job. This fucking job. It's a great job, you guys. We love it. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Anyway, um, we also like questions like this because our whole community is full of filmmakers, and they get a lot of responses on the board. So, D has received several responses from no film school community, and they're sort of mixed, um, mostly encouraging. But I would say, you know, I agree with some of them who are kind of saying, in essence, actually, 25 hours a week job is kind of ideal. Um, I mean, for me, that would be a dream, right? Like you have sort of a half-time paid job that you know you're going to have steady income and you have the whole rest of that time, you know, the rest of your remaining time when you're not working and your nights and your weekends to potentially devote to film. And if those 25 hours are flexible in some way, that's even better because then you could potentially, you know, work at the gig Monday, Tuesday, and then go be on a set somewhere Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I don't know that I would totally encourage you to just quit your job, although I would certainly encourage you to pursue your filmmaking dream. And it sounds like you have a lot of the right ideas by knowing that you need to go and be on set and be hands on and and network with other filmmakers. I think I just have like maybe an interesting take on this from my own personal experience. Um, For me, it was weird because I sort of started out in the position where I just quit my fucking job. What I mean by that is I didn't really have a job when I was right out of college. I was just, you know, working as a busboy for maybe a year and a half to two years. Um, Still working like 25 to 30 hours or whatever, but I sort of, there's this myth that like you can't have structure or you can't have a full-time job. You have to be working sort of a bartending job or as a barista to make it sort of to have time for this in the industry. but I was finding that not only was that untrue, it was sort of incredibly unrewarding because I was limiting myself to these sort of, um, not, like definitely nothing against people who have chosen this lifestyle and it really works for some people. But for me personally, I felt like I was limiting myself to sort of work that didn't matter much to me. And then um, I didn't really personally have the discipline after hours to be pursuing my own endeavors. Um, So what I ended up doing was quitting that sort of lifestyle and sort of refocusing my efforts into finding this structure that would then help me create my own work from there. (laughs) Kind of confusing, but um, I found that once I had sort of a more stable sort of ground underneath me, it, it really just becomes more and more about your own discipline and well i think i would i would specify that you your full-time job was film related yeah exactly i quit my sort of restaurant job to go into the industry 
of sort of like film journalism at IndieWire and at Snag Films and then work myself up from there. Um, so maybe just look for a job that you find to be more interesting for yourself and that sort of inspires your own pursuits. That's that's what I would say. I think the other nice thing about having a job that pays is that then you can afford to volunteer on sets, which might give you more leeway about the kind of jobs that you get and the kind of responsibilities that you get. Because if you're willing to work for free, people might throw you a lot more work. Right. And if you are working 25 hours a week, it still kind of gives you time to like have days where you just take a random PA job or something, you know, and that's if you're looking for onset experience, then that's really what you should be doing. I mean, that's what everyone does really to get off the ground. Well, good luck, Dee. Keep us posted. The next question is from someone named Sydney who wants to know whether she can put logos on her social media content. These logos pertain to her sponsors for her film. Now, I would be careful about social media content logos because Facebook's algorithm actually crawls each photo and can tell whether or not there's a large portion of text, which normally constitutes a logo, and it it deprioritizes these these photographs because it thinks that you're basically advertising for free. So if you want to put logos somewhere, put it in the pre-roll for your film, in the pre-roll for your short clips, your trailer, but don't put it in the pictures because your your posts are going to get docked by the algorithm. Yeah, and it also depends on what you've agreed to with your sponsors. Like you're not obligated to put their logo on every single social media post that you make and you know, you're likely not obligated to do that. Most sponsors are just listed, as Emily said, either on the pre-credits to the film or actually usually in the film's end credits, and everything else is icing on the cake. Just think about like how many social media posts you see with logos all over them. Probably very few, and probably for the reasons that Emily's described. But congratulations on getting sponsorship on your film. That is not an easy feat. So while we are just enjoying the beginning of summer here in New York, our many friends out in L.A. are boiling over with the heat wave. If you all want to get inside and cool off and watch some movies, there are lots coming out this weekend. Terrence Malick's Night of Cups has hit VOD this week. It's his latest with Christian Bale, Kate Blanchett, Natalie Portman. We've spoken about it on the show before. It got a lot of controversy because of its sort of um, cliche views of women. Um, but it is Terrence Malick. He is beloved in the indie world, and uh, it's out there for you to make your decisions. Another movie that's coming to VOD this week is Midnight Special, which is Jeff Nichols' latest sci-fi with Michael Shannon and Joel Edgerton. It was one of my favorite movies that's come out this year. Um, I really like sci-fi, though, and I'd never seen any of Nichols' other work previously. Um, so this was kind of my introduction to him. And then after that, it inspired me to check out, you know, Take Shelter and Mud, Shotgun Stories. For some reason, it's been a divisive movie. Uh, I've had some friends who don't like it. I, I think Emily might be one of them. It's not that I didn't like it. I did think that Take Shelter was much more evocative and cinematic film. And Midnight Special, it felt a little empty to me emotionally. I didn't really have a reason to invest in the characters or the story in the way that that I did in many of his other films. I think maybe part of that is because it was his first sort of like major motion release. Um, I think, you know, he, all the, all, most of his other movies were very strictly independent features while this one had a studio backing it. So I, 
don't agree with you, but I th- I think that it sort of uh, maintains that sort of indie sensibility while still like appealing to the masses. But I think that's probably where some of that like loss of emotion comes from. Um, I don't know. The subject matter when he talked about it to uh, when Nichols talked about it was that it was a personal film in the sense that, you know, it was about him and his son. So maybe it's kind of like a more male skewed film. I don't know. Yeah, I think I was turned off by Kristen Dunst's character. Yeah. Because she was very underwritten. She was just the classic wife who made sad faces every once in a while. Right. Well, you all can decide whether you're making sad faces or happy faces <laughs> while watching this movie and uh, do your background research first on No Film School because we have Edgerton, the actor, talking about the making of the film at South by Southwest. And we also have a couple interviews with Jeff Nichols, the director, about pa- his past films and a brand new one about this film, Midnight Special, coming up on No Film School next week. Yeah, the the interview next week will be really interesting because it will focus on his use of anamorphic lenses, which is one of his signature styles. Yeah, they're very heavily featured in Midnight Special. One of my favorite films of last year is coming to Netflix this week, Todd McCarthy's Spotlight. It won the Best Picture, of course, as you remember, um, and deservedly so. It was it it sort of brought back the power of journalism. And I think for the first time in a very long time, you know, we live in this environment that's very saturated with clickbait and, you know, very surface level media coverage. And Spotlight reminded us all that digging deeper is really the only way to go in journalism. That's what it's all about. And theatrically, we're seeing some pretty, it's a pretty big week for indies, um, at least in the in the limited release sort of category. Nicholas Winding Refn's latest that premiered at Cannes earlier this year, sorry, Con? Can? Can. Can. You can do it. That Oof. is the American approved way. Okay, good. Uh, this movie is called The Neon Demon, and it stars Elle Fanning, and the buzz was good about it, right, Em? You were at can no critics hated it really yeah i didn't see it at can because i had to leave before i was able to see it critics tore it apart uh, but some people loved it i mean i think the theme seems to be it's divisive yeah it seems like every single other one of his movies in that sense where you know it's flashy it. like a music video in a way yeah and people either love it or hate it too we'll see and swiss army man comes out this week on friday uh i had the privilege to just actually check it out this morning um at an advanced screening and it was awesome i mean i'd have i'd had high hopes about it since i went to sundance um and daniels won the uh best directors award there but you know i kept hearing about how the whole movie was about farts and it, it was super divisive as well because um it was immature in that sense and people were standing up and walking out of the screenings so I was kind of expecting it to be uh, immature or, you know, very heavy on the fart and boner jokes. And it was, but it also had like a lot of surprising depth to it. And I was really sort of satisfied with the insight that these guys brought into sort of like the entire human experience. Um, there was one quote that I was watching an interview today, a Q&A after Sundance um, that the Daniels gave. The movie is about a suicidal man who's trying to convince a dead body that life is worth living. And I think that's probably the best way to sum it up, actually. Whoa. Yeah, it's crazy. It's a nuts movie. (laughs) So it's existential in a way. Yeah, I mean, it's super existential. The whole movie comes down to is 
Daniel Radcliffe's character like actually real or is Paul Dano just super schizophrenic and crazy and I'm not going to give anything away but you know go Wait, see it. so this is by the directors both of whom are called Daniels and it stars Daniel Radcliffe and Paul Dano. Yeah. This is the Danest film I've ever heard of. Yeah, and Radcliffe and Dano are great in it and Daniels um if you've seen the turn down for what music video then you've seen their work um so you can also sort of know what to expect uh from that music video too it's great it's really weird and finally in the indie theatricals this week one of my favorite movies of the past year was a uh, hunt for the wilder people we've talked about it on the show it is the perfect summer movie because it's so much fun you don't need popcorn you have this it's a uh, New Zealand director Taika Waititi and it's just it's like the Goonies for today it's like a coming of age like kid power fun funny adventure movie is it anything like what we do in the shadows I think it probably has the same sort of New Zealand sensibilities you know that like absurdist character humor yeah I mean he does a lot of work with Jermaine Clement and sort of like the flat of the concords gang so it'll be it'll be great eagle versus shark was him too and boy so well, yeah, it's probably in that same vein. I, I haven't seen it, but I'm really excited to see I it. I thought you were asking if it's like what we do in the shadows. And yeah, I, was I was like, like why are you, you <laughs> mean so tickling? <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, cool. So um, as far as other things going on right now, um, we always like to mention things that are in our neighborhood. And actually right around the corner from our office for just a couple more days uh, until June 26th is the BAM Cinema Fest which um, has really been lauded in local press in recent years. The New Yorker called it the city's best independent film showcase, which is saying a lot in New York City, a major hub of independent film. I interviewed one of the directors, Elizabeth Subrin, whose movie A Woman Apart, starring Maggie Siff, is in the festival. That interview is already up on No Film School, and her film is playing again this coming Sunday, the 26th. And I'm going to see the documentary about the Newtown shooting tonight, And I will also see Childhood of a Leader by Brady Corbett, who I will interview later in the week. And I'm going to see Joshy tomorrow, which I already saw at Sundance, but it was really good. It was that good. Yeah, it's really great. If you like Silicon Valley, um, it stars Thomas Middleditch. And I just think Thomas Middleditch is a super underappreciated actor and his abilities as an improviser just are crazy. And everyone in that movie is really good great at improvising um i think you just convinced me to see it yeah alex ross perry is in it he was he's supposed to be in a movie he's supposed to be in a movie yeah he's (laughs) he's a director so he's supposed to be in front of the camera like his character is just oh yeah to be in front of yeah totally and he's really fucking funny in it there's it's just a really another really bizarre movie that i saw at sundance so check that out uh if you can well, my BFF's name is Joshy, so I'll probably be there. Cool. Maybe we'll see you guys at the movies. In the meantime, uh, we'll be taking a little summer break next week. I will be in Poland, of all places, at the Krakow Jewish Culture Festival. Um, so we hope you'll take this opportunity to, you know, take a swim, work on your movie, and maybe listen to one of our many, many interview podcasts that we've recorded at Sunday on South by Southwest, Tribeca and beyond with lots of fascinating directors, cinematographers, and other behind-the-scenes film folks. And, of course, you can read about everything we talked about in this episode and get links to all of our mentions um, on the post associated with this podcast at nofilmschool.com. 
And while you're at it, subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and give us a shout. Uh, I'm at LizFilm on Twitter. I'm at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. J. John Jim. <laughs> Jim John Jim. And I'm at E.L. Booter. And we are at No Film School. See you in a couple weeks. Happy tickles. Hags, guys. <laughs> Hags. <laughs> Hags. <laughs>